Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You're on Crackmate, the podcast where we discuss movies, television series, and whatever takes our fancy, really, analyzing and reviewing them to the point where we've been told flat out, you're on Crackmate. This week, I am delighted to welcome back someone who I'm pretty sure owns shares in You're on Crackmate at this point, the wonderful Joseph Early Show. How are you getting on, Manuel? Sean, how are things? I'm looking forward to our next 17 collaborations in a row after this. As, as, as am I. I think we just start taking individual episodes of things and then covering <laughs> those entire seasons. Uh, don't say that because I might take that seriously. We might actually have to do it. <laughs> uh, there was a show um, I watched the other day. I think you were telling me about it as well. It's uh, The Cage. I think if we started that and then we just keep going until we run out of material, basically. <laughs> Pretty sure it'll just be 700 or so episodes. It'll be absolutely grand. We'll get through before Christmas anyway. We can like, we'll release one a day, like it'll be grand. Don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. Just, because... read, out the, just read out the uh, memory alpha page on it, including the trivia. And it actually... <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but anyway, Captain's Log started too. <laughs> so no, um, sorry, how are you? How are things? How are you getting on? Not too bad. Now I'm looking forward to discussing Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home with you now today. I so obviously rewatched it for this, but this is one of the movies that I've seen the most times because it's just for me, it's the most fun by far. Yeah, it's a real kind of it's a real feel good film as well. Um, it's a massive departure from what we had in the previous two films in terms of the heavy tone and things like that. Yeah, yeah, it's like it, it's funny that two, three, and four make up a trilogy when really you could say it's two and three, and then there's the voyage home. Although the story does follow on. It's a kind of a strange one because, you know, like looking back over, you know, you know when, you're, when you're kind of watching this, um, especially for purposes of this discussion, you, you kind of look at the first six films as a whole. And you look at the first movie and there was so much promise with it. And then it was a bit of a kind of, you know, what the hell was that kind of job? Like in fairness, it looks beautiful, but it's a bit all over the shop. You know, and then they came back to make the second one to try and say, well, let's just gut the budget. Let's see what we can do with this. And then two, you know, was such a success, it had to lead into three. And when three was over, you know, as Leonard Nimoy said, he was immediately pulled aside and they immediately said to him, listen, you're making a four, you know, like that before the 30 million recent cinemas that are going, we're so happy with what you've done, you're, you're getting the fourth. And the funny thing is, even though two, three and four formed their own trilogy, five picks up directly after four then as well. And then obviously, you know, because William Shatner had to get his movie as well. <laughs> then there was... And Yo, we haven't then, stopped paying for it since. Good Lord, we have not indeed. And then, like, obviously then that meant that, you know, the 25th anniversary was coming, they had to give him one last film. So it's kind of weird how the series as a whole, in terms of the movies, just kind of came together. Like, it just, it was almost haphazardly in one way, but then it kind of, it just grew its own legs. Like, I definitely feel that, like, when you look back at the advertising and things like that, like, when this film would come out, at this point, especially after this film had, premiered like Star Trek was an absolute bona fide movie kind of magnet and the actors were kind of were movie stars at this point the transition was fully complete at this point that you know they were completely established and a Star Trek movie coming out was now an event that you actually look forward to an adventure was completely tied into it that is I think that's a fantastic description especially because like we we've been Trekkies for several years and so like we've seen historically how the franchise began how it lulled how it picked back up again but if you think about in terms of what we saw on tv growing up sure we had next gen since we were tots and by that stage you know everyone knows who spock is everyone knows who captain kirk is everything like 
was it this film, even though two and three were both successes, was it this film that effectively said, mm, do you reckon we should do another TV show, lads? I think when, like, there had always been discussions about it, especially with phase two and things like that. I think actually was one of the interesting, pardon me, one of the interesting things when I was doing, you know, reading back over stuff was actually the animosity that existed between Gene Roddenberry and Harv Bennett. And they really did not like each other at all. And I remember one of the things that I was reading was that Gene Roddenberry was, because like, obviously with the movies, Gene was completely kicked to one side because yeah. they didn't really want to listen to his thing. So I'd say that obviously he spurred him on to say, well, screw you, make your movies, but I, and I'll go back and I'll make the stuff on TV. Like I remember like there was some a gala presentation or something like that when The Next Generation was about to start and uh, someone was saying that they were there with um, Gene Roddenberry. And Gene Roddenberry instructed everyone, do not talk to these people, especially Harv Bennett, about how this next generation is going. Tell them everything is going really well and things like that. And a while later, Gene Roddenberry and Harv Bennett came together. And, you know, Harv was just being, oh, how was everything going? And Gene was just completely, apparently the person who was saying this said, he came across as a total creep just saying to Harv Bennett, oh, it's great, it's brilliant, blah, 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 et cetera, just to try and put him down. Mm. I, I kind of say, you know, have your movies, but I'll go back to what Star Trek should be, which is on TV. That it's bizarre because like Star Trek's two to six, I mean, all right, yeah, call a spade a spade. Five's a dud. All right, you can I, I can enjoy it as a Trekkie, but it's it's not a good film. But thirties two to six have Harv Bennett's name on them, and in their own rights, and moments of five, they're bloody good films. Oh, they are, yeah, yeah. Next gen, obviously, love next gen, love the next gen crew forever. Season one's rough. That's desperate. Like. And season two is it's better, but next gen really kicks off in season three. Yes, but I suppose as well there was obviously the thing of trying to get out, like because the original idea of the next generation uh, was to almost remake all the original series episodes with just new and improved effects. Like if you look at the naked now, oh, it's basically just nothing from naked time. Yeah, exactly. it's. I wanted it to be. I only rewatched it there recently, and I really did. I wanted to be like. I know there'd be a nostalgia because I hadn't seen it in donkeys. I mean, it, they don't even hide it, do they? No, not even remotely. Like, You're kind of like, all right, where's Sulu with the sword, lads? <laughs> it was actually funny when we were doing this. Um, we did the commentary, or the sorry, the discussion about Star Trek Three. There was one thing I left out, and I was going mad that I left it out. But then when I actually looked up the reference again, I was there. Oh, hang on, it applies to Star Trek Four, not actually Star Trek Three. And I was Excellent. there going, "Do you have any idea what it could be?" No. Uh, um, is it to do with Savic? No, absolutely not. Um, so it's from the episode of Futurama when they had the, um, the when they had the, the all the Star Trek crew on it. Yeah, and, and they were talking about like they were when Melvar, the alien who's um, you know kidnapped them, is trying to get them to perform his fan script, and it's all over the place. And then Leonard <laughs> Nimoy says to him, Melvar, when I directed Star Trek Four, I got a great performance out of Bill because I respect him so much. And William Shatner turns around and he says. Yeah, that's right. When I directed Star Trek V, I got a great performance out of me because I respect me so much. <laughs> Fair play. I, I, had that. To, I, I had to get that quote in because I just absolutely, I cannot, I cannot stop laughing when I hear that because it's absolutely brilliant. Watching this movie and the, the conclusion of the trilogy, one thing that always kind of strikes me um, is when you look at the most recent three films, the Kelvin timeline, hmm. I always felt that they should have followed this kind of thing in terms of like a continuing movie series, like in terms of moving plot along. 
rather than three standalone movies because there was nothing to connect the films at all. And I think, you know, Into Darkness is obviously trying to say, well, there were kids on the ship in the first and now they're more adults, but there was nothing plot-wise to connect them. And then Beyond, I think, really suffered. Like, Beyond is a good film, but I think it suffered because it was just a standalone film and no connection at all. Like, at least, you know, with this, while you come into the Voyage Home, you can get away with not having watched two and three because you don't really need to know what the hell happened in the, in the two of them. And as a result, then, you know, this movie succeeds in that. Whereas I found, say, you know, beyond for the end of a supposed trilogy, kind of, you know, was lacking in that because it had nothing to kind of work off at all. I, I, I definitely agree. Like, um, of the, of the Kelvin trilogy, I think in terms of how much I prefer them, I would go one, three, two. I it, I have not made it made a secret of my feelings on Into Darkness. I still watch it. Don't get me wrong, but I mean it is a sub subpar remake of Wrath of Khan. But that's it. That's the only other film it seems to be connected to. Yes. In any way, like otherwise, it's just. Eh. Uh, whereas Beyond, they they try Beyond. I felt was trying to do both Search for Spock and Generations, neither of which very well trying to tie it into Enterprise, which they actually did more successfully by talking about, they mentioned the Zindi Wars and the Makos and everything, and that's great and everything. And then, but I mean, there's no getting around the fact that like the, the best thing that ever happened to the 23rd century was Nero arriving through that black hole because the technological advancements that came out of that, that Starbase is beautiful. <laughs> it's absolutely stunning. Haven't a notion how they built us, but it's stunning. So with regards to Star Trek IV, Sean, what are your memories of it? My, so I, I remember a couple of things. One is I remember we watched this on BBC, so I remember missing scenes. Oh, yes, BBC were desperate for, for hatchet cutting certain things out, right? Yes. Def, like, like, for example, the, 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 most exam, the most obvious example I can think of is when Gillian pulls up in the truck, walks through, the tank is empty, and the next thing, she's in the park. Because God, God forbid, BBC would allow the words "you son of a bitch" to be said. Uh, so I didn't know she had a run-in with Bob. I thought that was like a special extended director's edition. No, apparently that's just the film. And I like the fact that poor Bob, uh, the actor, was not. Uh, it was it wasn't the script for Gillian to smack him in the face. Because it's a very like I have to say that's a real reaction. Like if you look at his face, he's 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 not happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love, uh, um, so sorry, memories of this. I, I remember the, as a kid, the opening scene where they're in the Federation chambers, that always stuck with me because the, uh, John Shuck's Klingon always, just the way he speaks. I love that they brought him back for six. And uh, Spock at the testing terminal, maybe that's, if that's what you call it. Um, how do you feel? Uh, that always stuck with me, and then just pretty much everything with the oh yeah the the can getting crushed under the bird of prey. Mm. These, oh yeah, and actually this is this is a special shout out. If if dad, if you end up listening to this one, everyone remember where we parked. There is not an occasion I've been in the car with dad where he's parked since I've been born where he hasn't said that getting out of the car. The um, when we were younger, there was a. Um... Oh my word, a video store uh, inside in Limerick City. 
And you know, they used to be you know, the, the postings on the wall for the movies and all that, but they'd throw them out, you know, every, you know, every so often. So we used to go in and just basically bug your man for whatever posters he was throwing out. One of them was Star Trek Four. So my brother had that up on the in, on the wall inside in one of the rooms in the house for absolutely years. But I remember we used to, my father used to have a habit of buying real bangers of cars for years, like like if they hit, you know, 50 miles per hour, the thing would be shaking like there was no tomorrow. But we used to, always, every time we watched Star Trek 4, and when the ship is flying towards the sun to go back in time, and the, car, and the ship, when the ship be completely, you know, shaking like crazy, we used to always compare it to my dad's car and how uh, <laughs> bad cars he used to have. Um, this is one film I, I don't have a lot of memories from being younger kind of watching it but I do remember kind of you know when I started kind of you know remembering kind of watching it it was always probably the easiest of the films to watch it was really kind of a simple film to watch I remember back in 2001 I was down at my grand aunt and, and her husband in Cork and uh, it was on there was a Star Trek night on BBC and they had this on as the end of it and I remember they were there going I oh, should you want to watch that and as they were going oh Jesus Christ they're never going to watch this but they sat down they watched it and they thought the line um, when Gillian says, are you sure you want to change your mind? And Spock says, is there something wrong with the one I have? <laughs> they thought that was absolutely hilarious as they're grand. That's bought me another 20 minutes without them going, what in the name of God is going on in this bloody movie? It's interesting you should mention John Shook there as well. Um, there's two things about John Shook. Uh, John Shook's ex-wife married Leonard Nimoy. A Susan, Susan Bay. Bay. Yeah, she's, um, is she not Michael Bay's aunt or mother or something? I'm going to say cousin. Yeah, because... Uh, but you're right, it's, it, it's not a direct, like, they're not brother and sister, but there is a, a connection. And also, sure, is it may not be how Leonard Nimoy got the role of Sentinel Prime in Dark of the Moon, but there is, like, obviously Michael Bay. Yeah. You know, did, uh, directed is a strong word. But Michael Bay is responsible for the. I, although I will defend the first Transformers movie to the ground. That's pure entertainment. I so would I actually. I really enjoy the first one. There's an interesting one, and I didn't know this for years, and I didn't just come across when I was doing the research for this. When at the start of the film and the trial scene, when the Klingon, uh, when John Shook is walking out, someone shouts something, and I always thought it was just like ending the ending the ceremony. Yeah. You, you, you've heard it. You've heard the loud I've voice. I've heard the shout. I haven't heard, what it, I haven't heard the words. But. Do, you know, do, you know, do you know what it actually is? And I thought this was hilarious. And then when I listened back to it, I was like, oh my God, that's actually what it is. The person shouts out, you pompous ass. Watch it back and listen to it. Very you Oh, I'm dead. Yeah, you pompous ass. I would love that to be Sarek. You'd never get him on camera saying it. But you, know, you can just imagine Mark Leonard's voice. Because like he's, he's like the Klingon's just walking out and everyone's going, like, rabble, rabble. And I just, I honestly thought it was like a master of, master of arms just ending the meeting. Dang, and then yeah. when, I, when I read that, I was like, oh my God. I said, did they actually say that so straight away? Onto, I, um, when I read about it and I said, like, that can't be right. And then I listened back to it and I said, like, oh my God. I, said, That's exactly I thought you were going to tell me it was Leonard Nimoy off screen going, and cut scene. And they just somehow had never cut us out in all the years that have gone by. <laughs> Uh, I, I always found it strange as well that you know like when I was watching it back one of the things I always enjoyed was actually the recap of Star Trek 2 and 3 beforehand but obviously that was only for the European releases so when I was watching back the versions that I digitally have now they don't have it because I was watching like the US versions and it's, it's, it's just so funny the way that it's obviously viewed in Europe they're going look the Europeans have no idea what's going on let's just give them a recap <laughs> 
But guys, there's nothing else we can do here at this point to really tell them what, what the hell else is actually going on. I now have, and I apologize for this in advance, but I now have an image of a highly stereotypical Frenchman with a little cigarette hanging out of his mouth going, <laughs> where is the enterprise? <laughs> Who are these people? <laughs> what is going on? Why is Spock so old? Um, but uh, I am so sorry to all of my French audience for that one. Love you all. Je t'aime. <laughs> Um, when well, we spoke about Star Trek 3 like and you know like in terms of the tone of the film and things like that and like it was a massive massively brave choice to kind of say you know we're going to make a popcorn summer blockbuster that is going to be a comedy that is going to have no bad guy whatsoever and that it's just going to involve time travel and that's not true they've got a Pringles can <laughs> the, um, the funny thing was I think when they brought up the time travel idea to Gene Roddenberry I think I said to you last time Gene Roddenberry loved the idea of time travel because he always wanted uh, the crew to go back in time and to be at the assassination of JFK yes yeah I really don't understand why the fixation was on that but anyway there it was um, but like it was, it was credit to kind of you know like Leonard Nimoy and Harold Bennett that's what they wanted to do and I remember reading that Say Leonard Nimoy went around to a lot of kind of environmentalists and he was kind of there going basically what are the biggest threats that we currently have like like the original idea was a plant that they were going to bring a plant into the future but like should that be absolutely no fun like, you wouldn't exactly yeah it has to be something alive it has yeah to be. Ex exactly so it was kind of you know fair play to him that they kind of came up with that and that the message was actually kind of an ecological one again that's you know you'd never get a movie like this nowadays you'd never get a movie completely as bananas as this as you know, like uh, your crew going back time to rescue whales. But I think as well that it's, it's, the movies had so much credibility at this point and you'd believe what was going on that when there's a scene with Spock swimming with a whale and then mind melding with the whale and getting the point across of what they wanted to do, that you actually believe that that has happened and that he's explained to a whale, I'm from 400 years in the future, or 300 years in the future. Yeah, Angie. Now, the only thing, Right, if I have to pick things apart, I won't pick apart the mind melt at all. I totally buy it. I'm totally on board. But could he not have gone back, mind melted with a whale, and then come straight forward and been able to speak whale and speak with the probe? Leonard Nimoy is now dead, Sean, so I don't think he can actually talk to him. <laughs> that was the original idea he had for the resolution of the show. Show, I told you, you only get three more times you're allowed to hide behind the fact that Leonard Nimoy has died. All right, that's one of them. You get two more, use them wisely. Um, but you know what, actually, what you've reminded me of there, not with the fact that the man has died, but no, just I was doing a bit of reading on him today. And I'd forgotten this fact, but, but before Star Trek, before he had kind of made it, he was a taxi driver for a while. Right. And one of his fares was a young, non-famous John F. Kennedy. Oh my God, no way. Because his hometown was Boston. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it was funny with the time travel meeting JFK. I'm sure he should, he would have been the one who'd be able to say, nah, John wouldn't have done that. Jesus Christ. Uh, when I was actually, like, um, when I was sitting on the last day, I was just looking at the trailer for Star Trek Four on YouTube, but I was just going through then suggested videos. But there was a really interesting one I came across. A guy, it was only recent, like in the last year or two, and he was actually showing the filming locations for, um, you know, the outside parts in yeah. San Francisco. So he was showing where they walk across the street when the cab nearly hits Kirk. And then he said the scene where they come across the Golden Pages sign 
Yeah. Like that's literally only two blocks up the road. And it's lit. Like, he just walks up the road. And it's filmed right there. Like, you think watching the film that it's actually, you know, it's completely separate city. But it's actually a small little block. And then the scene where Chekhov and Sulu are asking passersby where the nuclear vessels are, that was literally only a small bit up the road again. So it's just they cordoned off a tiny part of San Francisco. And they said, right, we're going to film all the scenes just here. That's really heavy because the way they make it, you're right, they make it look like it's a much bigger, almost not grander scale, but that they've nearly got the run of the city. Yeah. You know, um, I, I just, I love every, I, I love the transition in the scenes, right? So when the bird of prey lands, I just love how straight away the tone of the film changes. It's relatively, if relatively serious until the bird of prey lands, you have the threat of the cetacean probe is in orbit. Yeah. Um, you have, everyone is treating it dead serious. You know, this, this is a problem. This is bad. And even um, McCoy, even in his kind of dry wit, like the mo- the biggest joke he says is like, you know, when Kirk and Spock are talking about going to time warp, he's like, yeah. no, right, sure, we've done it before. Pick up enough speed, you're in time warp, don't, and you're fried. That's kind of the joke of the first section of the film. Yeah. And then as soon as that bird of prey is down, everyone remember where we part, and the 80s music just kicks in, and it's brilliant. And from there, it's just a laugh riot until the end of the film. I remember when Leonard Nimoy was saying that when they premiered it, like the critics and all that, one critic turned around to him and he just said, Star Trek fans will not get the humour. Leonard Nimoy was there going, you really don't know Star Trek fans, do you? Like, but what's great about the humour is, is like, it's an incredibly funny movie, but it's not, there's not really any element of slapstick humour in it. And it's, it's like, one of my favourite lines in it is just at the end when Kirk comes back onto the bridge with Gillian and he just says to Spock, he says, Spock, where in the hell is the power you promised me? And Spock just, he just it's just so nonchalant. He's just still walking across and he just goes, one damn minute, Admiral. And then like Kirk just kind of looks at him and it's a good wide angle, so it's not tight on Kirk's face. And straight away, Scotty's voice comes over the intercom to say, you know, we're ready, let's go. I love that kind of humour. It's not, you know, in your face. It's not mm. slapstick. It's just, it's so well done. And it's just, the joke happens, it's gone, it's done. And it's just, it's so well done within the context of the whole thing. Like, it's just, there's a great scene as well then, you know, when they're walking along and you can see Golden Gate Bridge in the background and Kirk talks to Spock about, you know, again, it's nothing to do with, the, you know, the overall plot of the movie. And he's just there going, you haven't handled, you, you know, profanity, like, that's a whole discussion on that, like, and it's just, it's completely bananas that, you know, let's just put that in there because it's, it's just absolutely off the wall stuff. I love that because when you compare, like you were saying, like, things like this probably wouldn't be made today because if, if George and Gracie were stones, this is the plot of Endgame. Like, yeah. you know, it's, you know, you go back and you have to get things from the past and to the future or whatever. But now you find with a lot of films, each second costs millions of dollars. Yeah. It's like there will be absolutely no throwaway dialogue. Everything will have a tie back and everything. You won't get a conversation about swearing um, or, or like that. Is there something wrong with the one that I have? You know, that will be given as much gravitas as we can possibly throw on it because we need the audience to react to this. It's like, or just let them react. Now, the only thing was that the original idea with Eddie Murphy in it, it would have been, I could not have seen it being anything other than a massive, colossal disaster if the original idea of like of him following the Enterprise crew around and all that kind of thing and knowing that they were from the future and all that. You need to write. So this is one thing. So I, I am aware that there was a story which featured Eddie Murphy. But what I'm not aware of is 
what's do you have a breakdown of what was the story meant to be? If if say this was Star Trek for Eddie Murphy gets the helm, like what what is this film? Cheapers both. I put you. I put you on the spot now, have I? <laughs> Good lord, no way could I even pretend to guess what that would be. Like I just think because obviously he was he was superstar in the end. He was a big Star Trek fan as well. Is he a bit? Because uh, uh, there was actually they did approach him, and it wasn't one of those urban myths. I think, unfortunately, I think the Tom Hanks first contact one turned out to be a bit of a industry myth. No, no, yes. like Eddie Murphy absolutely was on board. Yeah. They, they, I think they'd because I know that when say they were writing, like because when Nicholas Meyer came on board, he said he was still yeah. working with the script that they'd written with Eddie Murphy and kind of mind. Like I think there was two different ideas with it. One was, um, or sorry, I think it was two different ideas how the Enterprise crew kind of came across him. I think one of them was that he was playing whale sound in his in his class, and that's what the Klingon brother Prey picked up. Another one would have been that he would have been in uh, Golden Gate Park watching a match and then there would be all these fireworks and all that and the bird of prey would have kind of come along and they would have all thought it was part of the kind of the special effects and things like that. But he would have just been following them around and things like that. I think there was one story without Gillian and then there was one with Gillian in it, but it just, it didn't seem to ever kind of properly find its home. And to be honest, I'm really glad it didn't find its home because it's just... It was, like, it was like when they were saying with years ago about Will Smith being in contention for Neo in the Matrix. Oh, yeah. And they were saying that one of the reasons it didn't work out was Will Smith wanted him to be surrounded by more women and be more kind of funny and things like that. And they're going, oh, my God, that would have absolutely destroyed the movie completely. Uh, I, what I'll say to, to credit Will and also to agree with that was a terrible, terrible decision. He says himself, he's like, I was dumb. I was young. <laughs> I was dumb, and that was a bad career move. I'm just like, well, I'm glad you said it. Um, he, but it's all right, though, because he got Wild Wild West instead. I'm luckily, I think I'm one of the, I was going to say one of the only people, I'm clearly am it. I've never seen Wild Wild West, and I really don't want to. It was funny, because I do know one bit of trivia about Wild Wild West. I think one of the writers in it was actually supposedly writing the Nicolas Cage Superman movie. Oh yeah, and he, he wanted to have lives, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. And he wanted to have a ginormous um, mechanical spider yes. at the end, and then that didn't happen. And he went on to write Wild Wild West, which has a giant mechanical spider at the end of it. Is that Ike Pearl Pearlmutter? I have Pearl? no idea. I yeah, but you are absolutely right. That is that that is a true thing that you have not made up. I can I can vouch for that, um, which is just ridiculous. But but yeah, Star Trek Four. Um, <laughs> I so like so going back there's a there's a deleted I don't I don't know if it ever got as far as being filmed but there is a reason Savick stays on Vulcan yes and the reason is that she's pregnant with Spock's child yep because they had some sexy ponfire in Star Trek 3 and it's a it's a shame that that was kind of that was left out like it's there's Three, like there's three things obviously with Savic that were left out in Star Trek 2. It was Kirk and Spock in the corridor after the simulation where Spock says she is half Romulan. Yeah, at the end of the movie, when Kirk is on the bridge and he sees um David and Savic speaking, and then Kirk says she's learning by doing, and then there's the scene then obviously in Star Trek 4 where you know it's the, you know it's not revealed obviously we know it is the case that she was carrying his his child they're kind of going 
I would prefer if they're, they're only a couple of seconds, it would be nicer to have left them in for character development. That's like, as it stands in the film, although I love Star Trek 4, it doesn't make sense for Savick not to come with them. To, why would she take the long way to go to Starfleet as, as is presented? Do you know what I mean? Like, would she not come? They're literally heading to Starfleet headquarters. Would she not even get a lift? But you can understand it from the movie point of view. <laughs> oh, from the movie point of view, they're just like, kind of like, what on earth is Savick going to do in 1980s San Francisco? It's like, whatever about Spock stumbling his way through trying to learn colourful metaphors. Um, it's, so, very, so, it, it's very much like Karl Marcus getting left out of uh, Star Trek Three. Like, again, from a point of view of the logic of the universe, it doesn't make sense. But from a dramatic point of view in the movie, it makes absolutely total sense. It, it, like, exactly. It's kind of like, Alice Eve was, she was, I, I like Alice Eve in Star Trek Into Darkness, yeah. as much as anyone can enjoy Star Trek Into Darkness. And, like, she was, it would have been nice if, I think, I realise we're not talking about these films this evening, but it would have been nice if they'd even gone, oh yeah, did you hear Carol Marcus says, heading up the regular one? Anyway, so this asteroid belt. <laughs> You know what I mean? But, uh, or even, in fairness, even in Star Trek 3, it would have been nice to be like, you know, oh, by the way, did you hear Carl Marcus is heading up anywhere but regular one? Um, which I assume must also have been destroyed in the Genesis explosion. Oh, completely. I mean, completely wiped out. There was one thing as well that I... Years ago, I remember reading the Star Trek monthly magazine and they oh, were yeah. reviewing oh, Jeepers. I think it was Preserver, one of William Shatner's many Captain Kirk books. And um, I used to like the audiobooks of them, like they're pretty, you know, okay. But um, there was one thing that they wrote in the review, and it always stuck with me. And it basically said is that the biggest drawback of um, William Shatner's books about Captain Kirk has always been that Kirk knows more than Starfleet does, always. And in this movie, when they're just about to go back in time, like they're on a Klingon ship, they are, you know, trying to interface with Federation databanks. And you basically got the entire, you know, Starfleet headquarters and they're trying to work out what the probe is doing. So when Kirk comes on the view screen, he basically says, you know, it's, got, it's going towards the oceans. We know it's humpback whales. I remember when I was watching the movie back, I was thinking, there it is again, like Kirk knowing more than absolutely everyone else. But then the one thing I did appreciate that they put into it, because it would really be stupid if Kirk on his Klingon ship was able to work out what the hell the message was. But he says then a quick line, he just throws in, he just says, do you concur with this assessment, Starfleet Command? Would you believe, right? And, and here I am saying, I've seen this film, da, 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 I only picked up on that today. Yeah. As in watching it this evening, I've caught that line. I don't know what I've been doing the previous 25 times, but this time I caught, do you concur with that? Because I think in my head, I always fast forward straight away to, it goes straight into um, static. Um, yeah. But, it's, but it's, it's weird. It's a funny line because it doesn't need to be in there. But I appreciate that it, 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 from a point of view of not making it look like Starfleet or a bunch of morons, it, kind of, it works really well. Yeah. Like, there is, if, 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 now, I was going to say, right, if we're honest, the fact that this Klingon bird of prey coming from Vulcan was able to get to Earth's sun and get back in time and everything's fine, and not one other ship in the Federation managed it. That's fine. Listen, this is Star Trek. We, we go with this. We go with this. But was not one other ship able to analyze 
or like, oh, that's such, or or somebody going, do you know what? My hobby is whales. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, again, I, I don't want to pick it apart too much because I, I tell you, if we could start there and we will be here till midnight. Yeah, but how many, like in how many Star Trek movies is it said we're the only ship in the quadrant? Like, actually, do you know what, it, it, what's funny then about this one is that they've obviously been on a bit of a building spree because not just obviously the very last shot of the film, but we have the USS Saratoga, yep. we have the Excelsior, and there's also in Space Dock, there's at least an O'Berth class ship. And I can't remember if we see, I think there might be a, another Miranda class in there, but I might be making that up in my head. But there's at least, so it's like, all right, Grant, so you're starting to build some ships because you figured out having one ship in the quadrant <laughs> has not paid off in the last, you know, trilogy. <laughs> sure, it's, like, it's like the start of Star Trek V when they're recalled the Enterprise who, who were in orbit of Earth and Kirk is there, listen, is there any other, you know, there's no one else out there. Is it, well, we've no experienced commanders. They're going, how does Starfleet survive when Captain Kirk is on holidays here? <laughs> like, 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 you know, and, and that's the other thing, like, you know, the, as he says it himself, the Enterprise is a disaster, you know. Okay, so let's just move the entire crew right now walk you don't even need to be you can walk to the excelsior from where you are it's literally parked beside you that's ready to go you know at the very least all right the transwarp drive might not be working but everything else is working just fine but anyway right i digress i digress uh, there's a few lovely shots actually in uh in this film i think they had to correct me if i'm wrong i think they might have had to rebuild a model of space dock i think the one that had been made for star trek 3 didn't survive to Star Trek 4, or it could be that it into star trek it could be the same uh, voyage home into final I frontier think you're right yeah um because i was thinking i kind of had this in my head right because i know there's a little bit of stock footage not too much in fairness to this film there's not too much stock footage um wait is there any i i will address that later on but there's some gorgeous shots of space dock outside like with the probe going by, it's yeah. obviously just there's a beautiful model of space dock there. I do, I love that big giant mushroom. I have to say, don't mind me just taking a quick drink. That's no, all I, right. I'm just like, I'm just mean. I was like, I'll just finish my point here as you attempt to swallow whatever you're drinking there. Uh, but like as you said, there's a cool, you know, when the probe is leaving Earth and it goes. Like I love the fact that Starbase is completely enshrouded in, in, in darkness, and then as the probe is kind of pulling off, you know, the lights start coming back on, and you just really see how cool the model actually looks. Really, really nice. I I, I am fortunate enough that I was one of those people who, when Eagle Moss announced their model of space, I I think I signed them the deeds of my house or something. I was like, <laughs> I don't care what it takes, you give me one of the. And I have one of these, and it's beautiful. I love, love Space Dock. There wasn't even really much of a point to what I was saying there. I just really wanted to say how much I love Space Dock. In next week's episode of next You're week's on episode, Crack Me, Space Dock over and over again. <laughs> Sean is going Dock. to tell you all about Space Dock, and also Eagle Moss will sponsor the episode. Oh, don't tease me. Show, don't tease me. Eagle Moss, if you're listening and you want to sponsor the episode, get your people talk to my people. My people are me. <laughs> The one uh, thing as well that's really great about the movie is the music. Now, some of the whale stuff is a bit kind of, you know, good lord. But, like, the <laughs> opening and ending music is absolutely brilliant. And, like, it immediately sets the tone straight away. It's a, like, I mean, you've spoken before about, 
you know, the music being different for each movie, depending on the tone, which is absolutely crucial to these films. Like you could not have had James Horner come in and do the music for this film. It just would not have worked. It, it, just, it just doesn't fit. It was, I really liked what he did. It actually, funny enough, it took me a little while to, I mean, years ago now, but it took me a little while to kind of enjoy his contribution to say two and three and what he did for the series because I would still I would have, I worship at the altar of Goldsmith right but sacrilege anyway, sorry but anyway right right I say nothing uh, but then you have Leonard Rosenman who does this one which is tonally completely different again and it's as different nearly I, I'd say there's an argument for Cliff Eidelman as well but as different as any Star Trek soundtrack gets and yet still suits the film perfectly complete like even the music for the whales and things like that it's you know while i said it's a bit heavy-handed it works perfectly for the movie but again like you know obviously we're gone long past the days of kind of the big long introduction to a movie with you know music and things like that because nowadays the movie's just straight in or whatever but like with this you know you've seen the you know, we've seen what's happened in the previous films, but like the music just starts out and it just hits you with its kind of jaunty nature straight away and it's upbeat and it's positive and you're kind of there going, pretty sure this is not going to be the same kind of intense film we've been watching for the last two. And the same then, like the music at the end is absolutely brilliant. What I love about the end as well, with the end credits, it just, you know, it kind of, everyone's picture kind of comes up on the screen really and it, like that, yeah. it's really cool. It just, it kind of brings you back to all the fun that you've just had in the film. And it's just excellent. And it, it makes it, you know, even at that, you've had a really kind of fun adventure. And at the end of it, it kind of almost recaps it. And the music is still really upbeat. It's all positive. And it just feels, it feels brilliant. Like, and even the music of like Chekhov getting chased on the ship and the, <laughs> the music when they're, when they're breaking the, breaking Chekhov out of the hospital. Like, it's brilliant. I love that. I was, uh, I was, I was in the car today and I have a playlist of, kind of Star Trek it started as all the theme tunes and then of course it expanded to oh no I love that one I love that one but when four comes on I've the opening and I've Chekhov's run and hospital chase and home again that's Just those really all you need like <laughs> guide, you're right I hear you and I think is it the Am I making this up or is there a band called the Yellow Jackets that did music for this film as well? They did a bit of music called Market Street and I actually really do enjoy that. It's absolutely a bazillion percent 80s music. It's hilarious, but I really do enjoy that bit of music. That's that... music now when, say, when they, when they first get into San Francisco after yeah. they've parked the Bird of Prey. And it's only a small bit that you hear like when they're crossing over the road and Kirk nearly gets knocked down. That's where you hear that bit of music. It was every, that, that taxi driver was actually hired by every guest star that ever worked on an episode of Star Trek ever. You and know, the like, funny thing driving. was, oh, that guy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, I, I love the fact though, that the punk on the bus, Kirk Thatcher, like he was a okay. producer on the, on the movie. And like he just, you know, he spoke Leonard Nimoy and Leonard Nimoy had said that he got the idea from, he was leaving his apartment. The thing was in New York, and some guy was just going past with a boombox and was really loud and it just disturbed everyone. But Kirk Thatcher basically came up with the look of the character himself and the music he's playing. He actually did himself, like he wrote it with a friend of his, and they performed it for the for the movie. It's really cool. Like I, I love little bits of trivia like that to really add so much spice to a movie. The on on, on the bit of trivia, so now we're trying to. I'm going to try and one up you with the trivia, but I love that one. I love that one about Kirk Thatcher actually because. 
whenever you see him talking, I think I was I was watching it on the the Blu-ray making of. He just had a ball. He clearly was just like, I got to be a punk rocker. This was brilliant. <laughs> um, the little bit of trivia I love is Chekhov and Uhura when they're asking everyone and anyone, you know, do you know the way to the nuclear vessels mm. in Alameda? And that one lady stops hmm. and she says, you know, they go, oh, excuse me, excuse me. do you know the way to you know, the nuclear vessels? Oh, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I'm probably across the bay in Alameda. Like, Alameda, that's what we said, Alameda. So she was never meant to speak. Yes. She had parked her car and had been told effectively, sorry, your car is more or less impounded for the next hour while we film Saws, such is the power of Hollywood. Um, and something, she kind of finagled her way into a walk-on spot and then she just answered. Yes, that's right. And they were like, oh, I really like this. And so she had to be inducted into the Screen Actors Guild. That's right, yeah. Uh, and I was going like, all because... Oh, I can't move my car. I think I'll become a Screen Actors Guild member today. <laughs> I was like, I like that. I really like that. What you were saying about trivia there is that, you know, when you go into IMDb and you look at trivia and the first few bits and pieces are kind of there, they're all, they're fine. Or nowadays it's basically this person was in a Marvel film and so was this. There is but, a lot of that now, isn't there? But as you go down further and further, you start to get to the real dregs of trivia. So I have three bits of trivia that I found on Star Trek 4 that I absolutely thought were the most bonkers thing. What was worse is a lot of people voted these and said that these are useful and I couldn't get my head around it. So the first oh God, piece okay. of trivia was that we never see the inside of the probe. So, yep. That's, 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 that's it, that is, well, that is trivia. It's true. That's trivia. Yep, Absolutely. Yep. Um, two, when Kirk and Spock meet Gillian um, in the car after they've been at the Cetacean Institute and she picks them up. Uh, it said that is not a road. It's actually a car park. And I was kind of there going, there's a long shot where you can see that it's clearly a car park and not a road. So it's there going, that is still trivia. That is technically still a fact that exists. So that's yep. fine. And then the best of all, which I think is absolutely genius that somebody was able to spot this, is that in the dream sequence, when they're traveling back in time. The, the crucial scene of the film. Yep. Yes, that's right. That the audio that you hear is P is basically audio from later in the film yes. that the actors will then say. But that was actually trivia on IMDb listed. Did you also know that Captain Kirk played was played by William Shatner on the original TV series Star Trek from 1966-1969? Not sure if you ever heard that bit of trivia, but I said I'd tell you. Uh, thank you for that information. Um, I because really... hang on a second, just just to get this point across, he's there's a guy called Admiral Kirk in Star Trek Four, right? Captain Kirk in Star Trek could be a totally different guy, right? Yeah, did you know? No, that? no, no, no. What? That? Hang on, what? That's the no, 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 no. Because there's an because there's an Admiral Kirk and a Captain Kirk in Star Trek Four. I there bet you didn't absolutely... know that. I bet you did not. Spoiler. What you need to do, Sean, is you need to go on to IMDb Trivia and put that in there and see who votes for that as being useful. I will vote for it not being useful, I might add. Now, do you know, do you know what I got? Now, uh, <laughs> to kind of uh, sympathise with the useless information, I did this time around, I noticed two goofs. And one, I didn't notice this time, one I actually had to do a little bit of research on because I was writing an article on it, so my defense before I go on. So the two goofs, first of all. The first goof is when Admiral Kirk becomes Captain Kirk, there was obviously a shortage of jackets because he's still wearing the gold trim Admiral's jacket. 
when they're traveling to the new ship, which we won't talk about until the end of the episode, because that might count as a spoiler. Oh, I didn't know that now. Oh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's the thing. Now, but also what I think is the most egregious um, goof, because it completely disrespects another character in the film. Yes. So in Star Trek III, uh, Scotty was promoted to captain of engineering, and when they are reversing out of space dock, he is very much wearing his captain's bars yes. on his jacket. And for the entirety of Star Trek IV, it's commander's bars. He's been demoted off screen, which is a bit egregious when you think that all charges bar the charges against Admiral Kirk were dropped. Now, as I read that, and actually you're right about the gold trim, I just see it here. But in the defense of the story, they were saying that captain of engineering may not be like captain of a ship captain. And as they're going, that's, Scotty. that's an easy way to get out of that, right? Poor Scotty getting shafted. You won't get the uh, additional pay now for that. Yeah, at exactly, all. yeah. <laughs> now, the other one is a funny one, right? Because I had to do more research on the molding and the history of glasses frames than I thought I ever would, right? So when Kirk and Spock need to go and find some money, what yes. they do is they go to the antique shop and there's that gag about they're going to sell the glasses that McCoy gave Kirk for his birthday. And yes. Spock says, you know, excuse me, Admiral, but weren't those a gift from Dr. McCoy? And they will be again. That's the beauty of it. And you have the antiques dealer. And it's like, oh, yes, it's 18th century very valuable. However, those 18th century glasses have very modern plastic molds around the nose clip and around the ears. And so, yes, you could bet your arse. I went and started researching when those moldings were added to glasses and they would not have been around in the 1700s, I can tell you. So either they played a blinder of a lie game or that antiques dealer was absolutely full of shit. Either way, they were lucky to get $100 for them. This is the kind of cutting edge trivia that you, if you're listening this to this right now, whatever 1986, you're doing right now, this is really 2021. This is the, 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 this is the hot take. You didn't think there was any more hot takes to be done in Star Trek 4, but it's right here. Leonard Nimoy was saying about the movie as well that when um, they were kind of trying to work out what kind of clothes would they wear back in the, in the past. And they were kind of saying, you know, could they wear what they're currently wearing now? <laughs> and Nehemiah said he just walked out of his house, walked up and down the street, and he just saw the clothes that people were wearing in the 80s. And he was there going, yeah, it'll be fine. We don't need to change our clothes. <laughs> it's actually going to be grand. Do, do, do you know, actually, do you know what is funny? Because you must have noticed this as well. One character does get a costume change. A badly, badly needed Check costume out. change. And it's Chekhov. What on earth was he wearing in Star Trek 3 The Search for Spock? It was like some sort of like, um, what you call it, the puritanical um, the pilgrims, almost the way that the collar came down. They were basing it off So I think what they were trying to say is um, they were trying to look at Russian heroes that Chekhov might have had. Okay. And they were saying they based it off, I cannot remember who it was because I remember the first for our commentary about Star Trek 3 and I've forgotten it. But they were saying they were basing it off the clothes that that person would have worn and like they were absolutely dreadful in Star Trek 3. Oh, they were. At least like they're they're kind of not obviously well, the jacket stays the same. No, he looks grand in Star Trek 4. Yes, he does. Yes. But, oh, so obviously it was so bad that on Vulcan, somebody pulled him aside and said, dude, seriously? The, um, 
one of the things I one of the things I, I seen I bypassed on this for so many years I never even really realized it was uh, you know Nicholas Meyer doing all the 20th century dialogue like I didn't I, I didn't even cop his name in the credits for years I thought he was always an uncredited scriptwriter on it but like I really appreciate the fact that in Star Trek 3 he refused to come back because he said listen I don't believe in resurrection so I have nothing to add to this at all and then for this, they spoke to him about it. And, you know, Harv Bennett said he'd write the opening and the conclusion both in the 23rd century. And he said he would write, uh, Nicholas Meyer said he'd write the middle part all set in, you know, 1986. And it was handy for him because he just made the film Time After Time, which was based on, um, oh, cheapers, I was going to say Jules Verne. Um, oh, my God, who created the time machine again? H.G. Wells. Oh, H.G. Wells, yeah. And he goes back in time to uh, chase Jack the Ripper. And he ends up in, sorry, not back in time, forward in time. And he tries to capture Jack the Ripper. So it's a, basically, it's a fish out of water tale for him. And strange enough, H.G. Wells is played by Malcolm McDowell, who played Tully and Sarn in Star Trek Generations. But I'm not aware of any of this. So Nicholas Meyer had done the, had writ, wrote the stuff. For, so basically he was there going, it's the easiest script assignment ever because he was there going, I've basically written this already just for H.G. Wells. So he just had to change things around. He wanted to change it so that, because his time after time was in San Francisco as well. He wanted to try and get him to move the action to Paris, but I don't think Paramount were going to spring for that to happen at, at all in any shape or form. But it's great in terms of like, one of the other things I came across with that, it was the highest grossing film of any of the films until Star Trek 09, the reboot came out. I do you know what I I think I had this in my head at number two. I thought motion picture, only that the box office or only sorry that the budget was so high on motion picture. Um I can think it ballooned to like 44 million yes, or something. That's right, it kept going up. But I think it actually it, despite the fact but despite the critical reviews, it actually did quite well at the box office. So I thought that had taken in more than Voyage Home. So actually, to be honest with you, I'm glad Voyage Home took in more. It's a more enjoyable film by far. But see, but you know, like it's just it was it was able to do what Star Trek, you know, can't do can't do at times. Um not that that's a criticism of Star Trek, of course. It's just it was able to appeal to the masses because it's very easy just to kind of you know, because it was a kind of a comment on what society was like at the time. Like, you know, just as they're landing, Kirk says, you know, basically, you know, it's a primitive and paranoid culture that we're kind of coming across and things like that. And like, you know, it was like, it was the future looking back at the past and basically, you know, doing a face palm going, how the hell did we do these things so badly? Like just before this, you would, you would text me when you're watching back the film. And like, even when they go to the hospital and Bones is utter disgust of how they're working, like, you know, they get into the lift and the two doctors are discussing things. It's where he goes, you know, like kind of, he just gives out about them, whatever. And then when he goes into the operating room and he starts, you know, throwing their stuff away and he's there going, we're dealing with medievalism here. And it's so cool because this for us is cutting edge technology. And for him, it's complete and utter nonsense. Like it's all wrong. Like, and I love the fact that he doesn't even try to hide his utter disgust of, you know, what he's seeing. And like it's that's what would have appealed to everyone to kind of, you know, it, it's almost like as Irish people, us watching, you know, something like The Guard or something like that. When we see ourselves accurately presented on the big screen, it's absolutely hilarious because you're going, I do that, I do that, I do that, I do that. And when audiences of the time would have watched this, they would have gone, yeah, I've I, I, I met that kind of person. I've seen that kind of thing and all that. A hundred percent. And it does. It's because... Funny enough, so this is literally like you were saying, like some of Shatner's books, for example, are always Kirk knows more. Kirk, knows. Yeah. so this crew, in a way, literally does know more than everybody else around them because they kind of they know where humanity is going to go, and that's why they can bring the optimism with them. But at the same time, they're also completely unaware 
because they've no what does it mean exact change only uh but i beat the whole hospital scene the doctor gave me a new pill and now i grew a new kidney the doctor gave me a new pill and it was just like the bloody joy in that throwaway gag as well which is brilliant but i look and again you get earnest earnest dr mccoy uh and he gets into a a like a a fairly full-on argument with the, you know, the head surgeon. Yeah. You know, how do you explain this? Well, you know, fundoscopic. Uh, my God, man, put away your butcher's knives and let me cure this man. Yeah, drilling, drilling holes in his head is not the answer. <laughs> I love it. And even Chekhov, who, in fairness, poor old Chekhov doesn't always get an awful lot to do. Gets mm. some great lines in this movie. You know, Pavel, rank, rank and station. You know, Chekhov, Pavel, rank, admiral. That's fine. I'll do, mate. I love. I love as well when they're trying to when they're racing Chekhov out the just after you see the old woman when they're trying to race him out of the out into the lift in the hospital, but they just knock a guy over who's on crutches. And I love Bones' immediate instinct is to go over and help him. And again, it's such a throwaway thing you don't really get a chance to see it, but it's just the way Kirk just turns in Bones. We don't have time, and I rewind it once or twice because they were going, "What exactly does he say there?" But it's just so bloody funny because, you know, his immediate reaction has got to help this guy, but the entire future is at stake if we don't keep on going. Like, uh, But that's, so one of the great guys, uh, DS9 brings it back when they do Trials and Tribulations and they have the two, the temporal mechanics guys are just like, oh, yeah. oh, him, Kirk has his own folder at temporal. Like this, this film is not going to help him at his next temporal investigations <laughs> hearing. They, like, it's a wonder they even bothered to cover Spock's ears and eyebrows because otherwise they're just, they might as well. I mean, Scotty and McCoy changed the future. Whatever way you want to look at it, they directly changed the future. Like, oh, sure, looks like just changed technology there. That's fine. That's Actually, grand. I sure you... hope nobody's in Golden Gate Park for the next week. <laughs> what you said as well about um, goofs as well, there was always one that bugged me in that is that when they go to the factory for the first time, and they're talking about the you know the the tour being scheduled and then you know mock annoyance and all that and then scotty says i've traveled you know basically from edinburgh over to san francisco says, i've traveled millions of miles and i was there going hang on a second even in the 23rd century you know miles have not changed like it's not millions we know it's not millions. <laughs> it's like uh, listen uh, and as an engineer it's Slightly, slightly worrying. You get, you're getting numbers wrong, Scotty. Especially because we're relying on your latent knowledge to build <laughs> this whale tank. You know, I uh, must say as well as the character of Gillian as well, because like you know, Kirk hadn't really had a love interest in any of the movies up until this point. Um, so it was kind of you know nice to kind of bring that back. But again, the scenes with her were really good, and I like the fact that the actress who played her kind of said that she she hadn't been a Star Trek fan, and she kind of didn't go she didn't go back and look at any of the star trek yeah. stuff at all because she said she wanted to actually treat them all like holy god who are these people what do they do and things like that and not be used to them like and it really comes across comes across kind of well because you know basically her arc was going to basically you know had a huge bearing on kind of how the story went as well i i love the interactions she is so at no point is she a damsel in distress. It's not even part of the storyline, but yeah. she's so strong and she is the expert that they need. You know, there's no kind of like, there's no gratuitous shots on say, oh, I don't know, a shuttle planet where she's suddenly <laughs> in her underwear for absolutely no reason. I'm not sure if you've heard of the film Star Trek Into Darkness, but um, 
She's brilliant. Now, the only thing, and I text you while we were watching it going, the only thing at no point was, it was, was Admiral Kirk able to not just go, no, beam you back down to the planet. Like, you know, it's like, he obviously like, no, I like you. You'll come into the future. And she leaves him. She just says, bye, I'm going to my own ship. He's like, does anyone, hang on, she's from the past. Should we maybe, okay, no, I, no, just me. All right, fine. What I don't get with that is she's going to her own ship and I'm there going, but wait a second, she went to the future to mine the whales. And now she's going on a ship leaving to go into the galaxy. So what's going on there? That makes no sense. She is the progenitor of cetacean ops on all of the different uh, Starfleet ships. Yeah. You have it here. Hot take right now. I was was listening back to the audiobook about the 50 years of Star Trek and they said that there was a discussion between Harold Bennett and Nicholas Meyer about what her fate would be Mm. because Harold Bennett wanted her to go to the future and basically sort out the whales there. But Nicholas Meyer, fair play to him, he disagreed and he kind of said that if she goes to the future, then kind of you're taking, you know, basically what about the people who exist now who are trying to make things better? And just by taking her out, you're taking away someone who is trying to make things better in the current time, i.e. 1986. Oh, I never yeah. I never considered that. And like, it's only that's when I heard it, then I was there, well, that's actually really interesting. That, it, But again, you wouldn't be surprised if Nicholas Meyer would make that kind of point about it as well. Can he just come back to Star Trek? <laughs> I do no. like new Star Trek, don't get me wrong. But can we just, can we get some of this movie era stuff back? There was some pretty good film. Do you know what actually I felt? While this movie is a really strong, like it's, uh, shut up and pay attention to what's going on on the planet, will you? But it doesn't, or at least I don't feel it's very heavy handed in its delivery. There are some scenes, I won't lie, like the, the footage of whales being hunted. That's just like, not what I was expecting to see in a Star Trek film, not going to lie to you. But it's no more heavy handed than some original series episodes were. And maybe slightly more heavy handed than some next gen. Um, um, what you said about the footage of the whales there, Leonard Nimoy said actually that they got that footage. It was like almost like um, it was like a promotional video from wh- from whalers basically saying, "Here's the here's the work we do," which is basically showing them slaughtering whales. What? Yeah. yeah, that's what it was. That's a. But that was it. Like it, it, it had to show the horrors of what's actually going on because it had to, you know, you had to shock people into action, things like that. And he was able to get a copy of that and they kind of put it in then into the movie. Like, but I, I know what you mean about the lack of heavy handed thing. Like Jeepers is one episode of the original series where Kirk starts reading the American constitution and the effect we refer to as the greatest piece of, you know, anything ever written. You know, what the just, hell? Just imagine Chekhov going, um, I do not necessarily agree. <laughs> but uh, like, like again, you know, as you said, it's not really that heavy handed. And what's great about the movie is, that is there's a wonderful mystery to, you know, the whole thing in terms of, especially with the ending of the film in terms of the whale speaking to the, again, as I said earlier on about, you know, you believe that Spock can mind meld with a whale and explain the plan. And at the end of the movie, you can believe that a whale is telling a probe, listen, it's all grand, you can head away now. But like the producers, as producers often want to do, they wanted there to be subtitles at the end. Ah, no. And the producers, ah, that would have spoiled it. The producers were kind of saying things like, you know, the probe saying, where were you gone? We were trying to contact with you. And the whale would be saying, no, we're all fine now. Let's just, no, please, for the love of God, leave it out. Actually, at the time as well, when they were making this, William Shatner was doing um, a one-man show based on uh, whale song and things like that. 
So he would actually be on stage and be playing whale sound and he'd be read like, you know, when they said D.H. Lawrence and, you know, the... Whales weep not? Yes. Yeah. He'd be, he'd be reading kind of parts of that, but he'd be kind of moving along with the music as well of the, um, of the whale song and things like that. So it's actually really kind of odd that at that time he was actually working on something like that. Like he brought that up in the commentary. Actually, I know now you might make them, but I, I, if I don't say this, I'll forget it. There's a really poignant moment in the director's commentary of this with William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and they were talking about DeForest Kelly and they were kind of, you know, at this point he passed away and they were kind of saying that it's so odd watching his films because they were going like, it was William Shatner saying this, he said, it's, you know, at some point we'll be gone. And he said, and it'll be our body of work that's left. And when people, you know, think of us, they look at this work and this is what we have to kind of show who we were, that we exist and that we matter. And it was really pointed. It was really kind of yeah. interesting that he'd kind of bring that up. Like, like, I listened to his most recent audiobook and he spoke a lot about, you know, his own mortality. And in fact, he was 90 and he kind of was effectively saying, listen, I, I'm, I don't want to stop. I want to kind of keep on going. Like, and as much as he can be an ass, there is a kind of a very nice human side to him as well at times. I, like, I do agree with you. You're right. Like, He'll come out with some stuff and you're just like, granddad, will you get off Twitter? Oh God, the you Twitter know? page is, is awful. It's, it's a, no, it is no. bad, I have to. And it's, it's doing his, you know, his image no favours. And yet there is an awful lot of, for all of the smack he talks about Star Trek, which he does talk an awful lot of smack about Star Trek sometimes, he has been very involved with the fans. He's been very involved with conventions and... You know, he would, and this I say with love, he would go to the opening of an envelope when, if it had a Star Trek em, an emblem on it. Do you know what I mean? You could pretty much book him for anything. But the dumb problem is, would the cynical view be like he's doing that to his own devices rather than... Oh, probably. For, but then how many others do it as well and just oh, hide it better? Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like, little known fact, Nimoy hated Spock and always, no. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're right. So it's, uh, it is it's sad, of course, that, you know, not to get grim, but obviously we've lost Nimoy, we've lost DeForest Kelly, um, we've lost James, James Doohan. Doohan yeah. uh, and, you know, poor old Nichelle Nichols is not well. Um, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, can we, can we kind of just, Protect Shatner, Takei, and Koenig, please. And we just kind of wrap them up, maybe freeze them. Would that be okay? You know, so they could kind of just, yeah, it's grand. Uh, there was one foot actually, with Koenig in my head, and I've Takei points to make as well, because God damn it, I must talk about these people. But there was one thing that HD uh, did, a, did a change for me. So in this film, so when Chekhov is doing this run yeah. through the Enterprise, through one of the worst uh, guarded uh, nuclear vessels ever built by the way okay i realized they beamed in but i text you during this like you know that dog deserves a medal that dog knew uhura and Chekhov were down there the guard who was with the dog was like oh no i'm sure it's fine there's nuclear anyway it's fine um <laughs> but so Chekhov is running and that's all fun and everything but i used to whatever version whatever vhs i watched on the guys are running after with the guns and they have the the big, you know, the the straps hanging out with them. Yeah. I used to they were just these odd, strange coloured straps. Now with lovely Blu-ray, oh no, those are replacement bullets. Chekhov is not getting out of here alive. I was like, oh, this this is one thing that HD kind of robbed away some of the magic for me, some of the happy, <laughs> happy magic. No, he's a dead man. So best case scenario, he falls off the ship. 
And that's exactly what happened to him. <laughs> Did he fall or was he, pu- or was he pushed? Um, what are these uh, 2K points you have now? I'm curious about this. Is this about the deleted scene or the scene that never happened? Uh, no, I, lo- I do love that scene. Though. Like, you know, the little kid that runs by is him, except the little kid was just being an absolute nightmare the day they went to film it. The no replacement that the mother was a bit kind of pushy with him as well. Yeah, it's like, all right, there goes your film career, kid. Yep. Um, and what I love as well, like, there is no explanation whatsoever from Sulu stepping into the Huey to then suddenly delivering the plexiglass to the bird of prey. And I always wondered, and this is me being silly, what conversations did he have with that pilot that uh, suddenly he was able to take what is presumably a guarded piece of machinery? I just think that was fantastic. And then he's there, like, it just activates the windscreen wipers. I love it. I Um, think there was apparently um, a cut scene where, sorry, no, they tried it. They tried filming it a few times where he wouldn't have actually spoken to the pilot at all. He was actually just going to jump in and steal it. But they said every time they tried it, it just looked more and more stupid. So they just completely just ditched the idea and had him talking to your man as well. I got you. I mean, if he stole it with no dialogue, grand, it would explain around how he got it. But it would be like immediately there'd be an air chase and there'd be... I mean, I suppose we could just put it anyway, like for the price of transparent aluminum, yep, you can borrow a helicopter, no problem. It's fine. It was just, it was always so funny because again, younger me never put two and two together that that helicopter was probably in the same plant, just in a different, you know, just outside on the tarmac as opposed to in the smelting plant. What you're saying there, you see, obviously, you know, look, obviously movie logic. So you have to forget everything, right? So number one, they gave Dr. Nichols the, uh, hang on a second. Let me get this right. They gave Dr. Nichols the formula, but that was basically so they could say, we want all this stuff here and we're going to take it away. Mm. So the stuff that they load into the Klingon ship is not actually the... It's not transparent Luna. It is, it's stuff okay. of the day. So then, but then as well, right, Ch- Sulu brings down the helicopter, but he's only got one big thing of transparent aluminum or whatever to drop in there. Yep. So he would have had to have done about three or four trips to actually finish off. And then did he just return the helicopter that he stole back to the base? And walk. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, because there's a little bit, like they hardly left, you know, like, again, I'd love them to go back and be like, you know, all charges bar two are dropped. One, disobeying a direct uh, order from a superior officer. The other one is we've been trying to dig a Huey helicopter out of the dregs of what used to be Golden Gate Park for about 200 years now, and it's your fault. We appreciate you (laughs) saved the planet, but lads, could you not have made more of a mess? And of course, the wonderful bit of trivia for us being Irish people is that when they get onto the Enterprise A bridge at the end of the film, all the panels were lit green because they filmed it on March 17th, which is Paddy Day. I did not know that. Are you serious? Yeah, Michael Michael Kuda confirmed it. Yeah, so on the oh, day that's they, brilliant. On the day they filmed the bridge, if you look at the panels on the Enterprise A bridge, they're all green because it was Paddy's day. That is fantastic. That is I I did not know that. You didn't know that? Oh my word! Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's um, that's that's a guaranteed fact. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, I'm gonna go watch the film again now. <laughs> uh, I love to say if if I if, you know if you do like you know what's your favorite scenes from all the Star Trek films. From as much as I love four, that scene that pan up over the Excelsior is my favorite hands down scene of the film. It's just me going, oh, I 
love this song. Watch you get the original series theme plays in the background as right. well. And, oh. and of course, it, it was so good they decided to reuse it for Star Trek V because they basically had no special effects at the time, so they had to reuse whatever the hell they could get their hands on. Not but, gonna lie, didn't quite have the same effect in Star Trek V. But the um, the great thing about this is like when you read about you know the background to it, like all the actors were delighted with Leonard Nimoy directing it again, and he himself felt a lot more confident. He kind of felt that. When he made three, that they were, he was under extremely watchful eyes. But when he made four, they were very much kind of look, do whatever hell you want. And like all the actors got their own parts, they got their thing that they could do and things like that. And that's why I was saying, like at the end of the movie, when you see all the kind of pictures of the cast when the credits are playing, like you just see them all and really like you see like Scotty's pictures. Larry's has just got this massive smile on his face, like as he just beamed the whales onto the onto the Klingon bird of prey. <laughs> It's just, you know, it was just, it was just a great way to f- finish off the three films. Because I watched them over the last three weekends, two, three, and four. And it's just, they weren't, two and three were heavy handed. They had to be, and they're brilliant for it. And then this was so much of a change and it just came across so well. And there's just so many wonderful set pieces, you know, lines and things like that. And it's just like, again, sometimes in Star Trek humor completely falls flat. Like if you look mm. at Insurrection, say, geez, it was desperate. Star Trek five tried to have a bit of it as well. And it was very poor. But this just, there's little to no jokes that didn't hit. They were all right. They all worked. And like, you know, it all worked for the, for the characters as well. Like, it's a really funny movie and it's really fun as well. Yeah. If, I'm going to put you right on the spot now, favourite line from the whole film? I'd actually say the one I said earlier on when, when Kirk, like, there's so many of them, like, but... But she's actually, no, sorry, hang on. The best line in the movie is still when uh, Gillian asks them if they want to go for Italian. And the script originally said, one said yes, one said no. And then Kirk, then Shatner and Nimoy both said, we can play with this. So they improved it. And it's just the way they could, yes, no, yes, no, yes. And he says, I love Italian. So do you. Yes. And it's just, it's so, it's just brilliant. It's so well done. And what's great is that after Spock says yes at the end, it just seems over, done, it's gone. It's brilliant. You, how about your favorite line? My favorite line, nice and straightforward. Don't tell me you're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I just work in outer space. <laughs> oh, it is. It's 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 a film of just happy memories. Like, and I'll enjoy it as much today as I did when I saw it first. I was only a tot when I saw it first, um, and I think it ages very, very, very well. Um, I'm trying to think of, yeah, it, possibly one of the best in terms of age, even six, which I love, love, love. I love six. This is probably a more enjoyable watch. Than oh, it six is. is. Yeah, yeah, Do you know what I mean? Um, but again, there's, it, there's no bad guy and it's almost like set piece to set piece in this. Yeah. Like, Yeah. And it, it's odd as well in the numbering that they went Star Trek four, Star Trek six, and there was nothing in the middle. It's, it's odd the way <laughs> the films do that. But uh, there's, a, there's, ah, a, no, it's... there's also a cool scene at the end, like when you know they're they evacuate the Klingon bird of prey and they're in the water and the whales are you know coming by and it's just it's clear as day they're all just having an absolute mad laugh and you can see Leonard Nimoy is doing his best not to smile and not to laugh like especially when William Shatner is trying to drag him off the ship and throw him into the water as well. It's just, and the music is so bloody good as well. I also thought it was very funny that um you know they didn't use any they didn't record any real whales like any. Mm. actual whale footage was all stock footage and things like that so they built all the miniatures and they said they actually had a whale expert um you know come along and view it 
And he was there at one point going, hang on a second, I've seen that whale. That whale is in this place in New Mexico and all that. And Harold Bennett said, buddy, if you think that's a real whale, like you really need to look at your own credentials again. Because you know, none of it was real. Like it was all completely oh, no. made up. Because like the, a lot of whale people kind of were giving out about the production saying they got way too close to the whales, but they actually came near no whales at all. Like, I love that. Like if, obviously it wasn't, but if it was a real whale, I would argue the mind meld was a bit too close. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like, that's like, you know, there's, there's getting too close and then there's, oh, wow. So, you know, her secrets, right. Um, I love, and again, it, and this, co- this falls back under the, you know, you just didn't even read the don't break the temporal prime directive rule at all, did you? The shot that, it, just the bird of prey over the boat. Brilliant. I love it. I love it so much. That, that'll always... You know, whenever someone says, I think honestly, when someone says the word bird of prey to me, that's the first image that comes to my head. It's fairness. It is excellent. It looks, as a picture, it looks brilliant. Yeah. Now, Sean, as we're coming to the end of the conversation, would you recommend this movie? Not at all. Fantastic. No. Desperate. It's brilliant. And it's, 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 you said it best at the start. It obviously, it's great if you've seen two and three. It obviously, it makes a bit more sense. But you really could watch this mostly in isolation just by being alive in the world today you'll know who captain kirk is you'll know who spock is and you will be aware of what a humpback whale is probably yes you know um and i love it for that it's it's an episode even though it's a film yes exactly um and likewise then is there you know what what would be your sales pitch now for this film hello i've never seen a star trek film before ever i believe there's one with whales tell me about it it's the easiest one to kind of, you know, like it's, it's so funny because you just, you, when you try to explain the plot to someone, it sounds bonkers that, a, you know, the, the crew from the Enterprise go back in time to bring a whale forward to save the future from an alien space probe. It's completely bananas like. And yet, most successful film until 2009. There we go. Uh, this is fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Um, Thanks for having me on, Sean. You're always welcome here. You're always welcome. If anyone's looking for you online, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at Joseph Hurley. Excellent, cool. And if anyone's looking for you on the street, will I just drop your address into the description of the episode? <laughs> or <laughs> Yeah, and don't do that again. The last time that person wouldn't leave my house for a couple of hours. Ah, sure, listen, sure. A lot of fun was had by all. And just the, the police got there eventually, so it was fine. <laughs> Um, no you're a gentleman you're a star thank you very much for joining thank you everybody for joining and listening again uh, if you enjoyed what you hear please give us a follow on twitter at sean ferrick it's all the one of the same um if you really enjoyed what you heard maybe you'd head over to patreon forward slash sean ferrick and you know for the price of a coffee you might get episodes early or late whatever really but either way you'll get something in the meantime joe thanks very much again for joining me you're a star thanks sean and everyone thanks for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of you're on crack i've been sean and you've been awesome